0: Welcome to the Capitol Beach. My name is Derek Brockbank. I'm the Executive Director of Coastal States Organization and I am the host of the Capitol Beach. I am very excited today to be having another great conversation about um, a coastal funding source and a coastal program. Uh, this time we are speaking with FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and I am speaking with Camille Crane, who runs the BRIC program, the Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities BRIC. Um, it's a fascinating program. It's fairly new, but it's quickly become one of the most preeminent resilience programs uh, run by the federal government. So. Uh, Looking forward to hearing a lot about that, but first let's hear a word from our sponsors.
1: Support for the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today comes from Geodynamics, an NV5 company. Geodynamics team of specialists provide accurate surveys of complex coastal environments around the world using the latest technology in marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing. With customized vessels and sensor configurations, Geodynamics delivers meticulous data products to answer their clients' toughest questions. Visit nv5geospatial.com or geodynamicsgroup.com to learn more about Geodynamics and their solutions that improve lives. And from the Coastal Zone Foundation. The Certified Coastal Practitioner Program from the Coastal Zone Foundation offers courses covering 11 different subject areas, including coastal engineering, ecology, geology, project management, and more. The CCP program emphasizes a multidisciplinary approach to coastal zone management, setting you apart from the competition and demonstrating your commitment to best practices and a code of ethics in your field. With modules available online or as live short courses, the CCP program is accessible to coastal professionals at all stages of their careers. Learn more at coastalzonefoundation.org. And don't forget, subscribe to the CNT Daily Blast newsletter for the latest news and updates from around the American shoreline. Want to support our work? Learn more about sponsorship packages at coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. Okay, Camille, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you, Derek. I'm really excited for the conversation.
0: So we are going to talk about the program that you uh, oversee, BRIC, but first I'd like to get some context on FEMA. Uh, Many of our listeners probably are aware of FEMA, but I think folks often think about FEMA as the folks who come to town after a disaster strikes. I was hoping maybe you could paint a more complete picture of, of what FEMA does.
2: Absolutely, and I think that's very true. And it's when you start diving into all the things that FEMA does, it's very varied. Our overall mission is to help people before, during, and after disasters. So when you think of FEMA and you think about those recovery activities, or you see us um, in in communities that have been devastated by disaster, that's really that after part. The part that I work in is is all before disasters happen. So I work in a section of FEMA known as resilience. So in the resilience organization, and we do a lot of different things, including Uh, We manage an insurance program. So the National Flood Insurance Program is actually managed by FEMA that provides insurance um, for flood-related disasters. Uh, we do all kinds of training and communications and tools for our nation's first responders, states, locals, tribes, and territories, um, emergency managers to help them in all phases of emergency management, including preparing, responding, recovering, and mitigation. So making sure they are have those skills and, and, and tools up front to do that. And then FEMA is, in large part, a grant-making organization or a grant-making agency And so across um, resilience, we offer grants to states, local governments, tribal nations, territorials, including in some of our grant programs, port authorities, transit systems, and private nonprofits to reduce their risk to both natural and man-made hazards. The particular area that I'm in, or the program is in, is what's called Hazard Mitigation Assistance, and we offer several different grant programs to states, locals, tribes, and territories to mitigate their risk to natural hazards.
0: Thank you. And so, hazard mitigation assistance starts with hazard mitigation. A big broad concept. Could you give us sort of a, you know, quick back of the envelope definition of what hazard mitigation is?
2: Sure. It's any sustained action that reduces or eliminates your your risk to a natural hazard. So, for example, if you have a flood hazard, you may do like if the flood's coming, you may put in temporary sandbags. Well, that's a preparedness activity, right? So it it in in real time helps reduce the disaster or reduce the the risk to that disaster, but it's a temporary solution or it, it's it's just takes care of it that once. Mitigation looks at more permanent or. Um, like re, like a longer activity, I would say, to reduce the flooding. So instead, it may be construction of flood walls. It may be um, nature-based solutions, like on a coast, to help um, keep the flooding out. It may be property acquisition to create more floodplain storage. So it's it's something that doesn't have to be employed like in real time. It already is there, and it reduces, like I said, reduces or eliminates the risk to that natural hazard.
0: Excellent. That's a really Really good one. I've known hazard mitigation, but definitely feel like I have a sense of that now. Um, well, good news. we're going to get into, again, we're going to get into Brick, uh, but thank you for giving us sort of an overview of FEMA. Now interested a little bit more in, in you. Um, you have worked in hazard mitigation for your whole career. You started at a university and then worked with the state and then moved to FEMA. Um, how, did you, how did you get into hazard mitigation? Was this something you, you always knew you wanted to do or what was your path to where you are today?
2: I love this question, Derek, because it was one of those, I think, serendipitous um, things that happens in your life where you were not planning it at all and you kind of find a passion and, you, you know, the, the road opens up for you. Um, I actually went to the University of Kentucky, got a history degree, and then started with the Martin School to get a public administration degree with the idea of, of managing museums Um, when I went to grad school, I didn't have a concept of how I was going to pay for it. I thought credit cards were how you paid for school. Um, And so when they said, hey, we have some research assistantships that will pay for your master's, I said, sign me up. Um, And it just so happened that the University of Kentucky had a contract with Kentucky Emergency Management in the field of hazard mitigation. Um, It was actually working after the the record floods at the time in Kentucky in 1997. So this was about in 2000 when I was in grad school. And um, it was helping communities put together their applications for the Hazard Mitigation Grant Program, which is our oldest um, hazard mitigation assistance program. And through that, those years of of working as a graduate research assistant, I fell in love with the work. Um, So it really changed what I left the field or the idea of, of museum management and said, I really want to do this. Um, I love the idea of being in communities and helping them figure out how not to suffer again. Um, how to, you know, they, we were seeing, in, especially in Eastern Kentucky, repetitive every year it flooded and the people, you know, the same people were devastated, the same communities were affected every year. How do we stop that cycle of just repeated damages? How do we lessen the suffering? Um, for citizens. And so that turned into, um, I got my master's, and then I uh, decided to join Kentucky Emergency Management and became their um, state hazard mitigation officer. Did that for a few years, and then wanted to really continue my career in hazard mitigation, but There were no more opportunities at the state level once you're the state hazard mitigation officer. So ended up joining FEMA, who had all kinds of opportunities in the field of hazard mitigation. Um, First at the uh, Region 4 office in Atlanta, spent eight years there before moving out to Texas to FEMA Region 6, where I spent three years. And then was given this opportunity in 2019. At that point, I'd been doing... Hazard mitigation for about twenty years, and had all kinds of ideas about um, how our program should work. And so, when FEMA headquarters said, "Hey, would you like to join us and help build a new program?" That sounded like my dream job, and it has been. That's
0: a that's a great career path. I I uh, I, I love that you started in history and museum studies. I think perhaps that speaks to uh, the the need for sort of. Uh, eloquence and communication, which I think is something that uh, federal programs often don't always do the best job at, but I think uh, bringing that to brick can really be helpful. Um, and also love, uh, so I, I do have to ask on a, a sort of personal note, state hazard mitigation officer often has one of the, it's referred to as one of the best acronyms. Um, are you okay with, with calling a state hazard mitigation officer schmoes, or is that a, a bit derogatory?
2: I loved it. Now, I will say uh, I had fellow schmoes that did not want to be called that, um, but I do. I have said personally that I think it's the best acronym in government.
0: I loved it. Yeah. And before my time at uh, CSO, the coastal states ran a program with the coastal zone managers encouraging collaboration between coastal zone management and state hazard mitigation, which was called Get to Know Your Schmo, um, which I thought was a great program, or just the name, at least, was a great program. And I think it was, too. Um, Okay. Let's let's move into uh, uh, the Uh, The BRIC program. So um, Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities, BRIC, BRIC, we talk in acronyms here in DC. Uh, It hasn't been around for that long. You said you started in 2019. My understanding, and and you can help me out here a little bit with the history, but it was authorized within the Disaster Recovery Reform Act of 2018. It's now 2023. So that means it's been around for just about five years. Um, But it is already sort of one of the biggest, if not the biggest source of Uh, regular federal funding for proactive resilience in the U.S. So um, with that very abbreviated history, can you take us a little bit further back to sort of where FEMA was five years ago and how um, the sort of previous pre-disaster mitigation grants or the, the, the hazard mitigation assistance grant program back then and how that evolved into what BRIC has become?
2: Absolutely. Um, so back in 2018, um, and I'll even start back, I'll say starting in, in 2000, there was a Disaster Mitigation Act of 2000 that for the first time brought t- together what was known back then as the Pre-Disaster Mitigation or PDM program, um, first launched in 20, uh, or, sorry, 2002. Um, and that was our first funding that really centered a multi-hazard Uh, mitigation program in the pre-disaster space. Our biggest program at FEMA um, at that time and continues to be our biggest program in hazard mitigation assistance is the Hazard Mitigation Grant Program or HMGP, which is a post-disaster program. It's tied to the uh, disaster um, declaration. So it's particular for a certain state, for example. So with PDM coming about in uh, 2002, um, that was a congressionally appropriated program. So every year it went through a cycle of um, congressional, getting a congressional appropriation. And the problem there was that some years we saw the program zeroed out. Um, I think one year we only had $25 million na- nationally um, to run the program. And it's in, you know, our programs are, whether the PDM or the program are annual competitive cycles, um and then it it just it kind of ebbed and flowed over those decade or so in how much funding it was was being given but never really more than about 100 million dollars um after the disaster activities of 2017 so you had the hurricanes irma uh harvey irma and maria as well as the california wildfires we saw legislation come out um which is something that that happens a lot after big um, hurricane seasons. Uh, And one of the kind of key pieces of that Disaster Recovery Reform Act of 2018, which came out in October of 2018, was to modify Section 203 of the Stafford Act, which is where the pre-disaster mitigation program lived. And what it did was it changed how funding came into the program. So instead of being congressionally appropriated each year, it created a mechanism where the program could take up to 6% of disaster relief funds that had been basically declared in a disaster. So the way I like to think about it is every time a disaster is declared in the nation, 180 days after that declaration, FEMA looks at how much funding they're expecting to be spent for like public assistance, basically the recovery efforts of that program. And 6% of that total gets put into the brick piggy bank. So we have an account inside the disaster relief fund that basically keeps getting funding every time a disaster hits 180 days. And what that's allowed us to do is basically, because disaster activity doesn't seem to be slowing down, it allows us to have this constant source of funding Um, available and then once a year we crack open our piggy bank we scoop out funding to put into that year's program and that's you know we we at the same time we were having this ability then to have a more stable um, in some ways source of funding to support pre-disaster mitigation we also took the opportunity to examine the program and do large stakeholder engagement and figure out you know what did we want this new program to look like? Which is how we then became the BRIC program.
0: That's great, and I remember for years when I was with um, working on coastal Louisiana and then working with the uh, Shore and Beach Association, you know, putting a a plus up request in the pre-disaster mitigation fund and saying, you know, you're looking at <laughs> trying to improve the resilience of the entire nation, and we're getting you know fifty. Hundred million dollars, sometimes less, as you said, and it was just—it it seemed ridiculous that the only way you could do resilience was after a disaster. And um, and I think just that that concept of of taking these large scale, the funding coming from large disasters and and turning that towards pre disaster mitigation was um, was just an incredible uh, move on the part of Congress and the administration to sort of have that you know baseline funding available from that. How much? This might be a hot, tough question, right? Because how much is how much funding is available on an a- average year? And let's let's take a look before the the BIL, before the big funding that came in through the bipartisan infrastructure law. How much were you seeing on an average year?
2: It it, it really varies. Let me say that um, we looked at it, you know, a, a ten year average before we we um, built the program, so we needed to kind of understand, you know, how much could this be. And you would see anything from, for example, in 2012, if the BRIC program had been around, we would have pulled about $63 million in, which isn't that much, right? Compared to if we'd had the program in 2017, we would have had over $3 billion. So it just really depends. On average, when we've looked across the disaster activity of about a 10-year period, we should be pulling in roughly Four to $600 million. Um, now we were boosted, I would say, in 2020 um, by the COVID declaration. Um, you know, I always try to find the positives in things, and I, it's hard to find the positives in a, in a worldwide global pandemic. Um, But one thing it did is it was the first time in the nation's history that all 50 50 states, um, five territories in the District of Columbia, plus several federally recognized tribes, got a disaster declaration at one time. And so because of that, we were able to, in one kind of disaster season, pull a little over uh, almost $3.5 billion into the BRIC program. And we that's one of the reasons we've been able to have some pretty big years in our first years of funding is because of that disaster activity.
0: Okay, getting into the disaster activity, I think um, we haven't said it explicitly, but I think it's been inferred that th- this is obviously not just coastal, right? Our, our listeners are tend to be coastal, but Correct. you're looking at... Any form of natural disaster, but to the COVID piece, um, are you can you address sort of public health disasters? Sort of what are the parameters of disaster resilience that you guys, uh, the the BRIC program can address?
2: So, yeah, in in the BRIC program specifically, and you're correct, we we don't just focus on coastal we're a program that supports the entire nation um, the territories and the federally recognized tribes in whatever natural hazard risk they or natural hazards that they have and what are the mitigation strategies or risk reduction activities they can take to mitigate those risks so as as it deals with what our prime kind of um goal or the prime function that we need to see happening or we want to see happening in in projects that we fund it's related to natural hazard risk reduction. So hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, ice storms, volcanoes, um, wildfire and heat, which are two that are really, you know, gaining in prominence right now, Uh, all those. But that being said, as you look at the program and what we prioritize, we love the idea that the projects we are implementing have ancillary benefits. And so some of those ancillary benefits that might come along with a natural hazard benefit or natural hazard risk reduction benefit include things like water quality and habitat creation. Um, Park, you know, when you're creating parks and places by opening up green space, you could be adding, you know, social benefits in. So those are some of the you know, we, we very much care about these these extra ancillary benefits that can be achieved in natural hazard. Um, mitigation projects. And that's just some examples.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And maybe we can even start to get into a little bit of the types of projects you fund. I think conceptually, it sort of makes sense. But um, I I know the project, the program hasn't been around long enough for you to see, you know, ribbon cuttings on resilience projects. Um, But you've certainly had a couple years of funding under your belt. So can you give us a type of of project that might be you'd see as sort of a um, quintessential, you know, good brick type project
2: um sure you know one thing i always want to start with is um, people that was one of the questions i get most is so you know give me a list of all the projects you'll fund, um and we do and don't have a laundry list and when i say i like to say we don't but in fact there is something called the hazard mitigation assistance guide which is kind of our it's not kind of it is our big guidance document that Um, administers that is probably rules of engagement for all the hazard mitigation assistance programs. And within it, there is a checklist or there's a chart, I should say, that lists different mitigation project types and which of the programs that project type is eligible under. One of the things, though, I always want to say is one of our guiding principles that the program was founded upon was to encourage innovation, because we know as the as conditions change in the country and we're seeing disaster activity and, and risk be um, increased because of changing conditions, we also are being called upon to find new ways to mitigate or to adapt. Um, and so we wanna be able to support communities who are, who are finding those new ways or who are innovating you know, new solutions um, to mitigate or to adapt to, to climate change particularly. So I always like to say that we will, we are open to some more supporting different types of projects or, or things that may not be so traditional. Um, and that includes, you know, as long as the project mitigates the risk to a natural hazard, assess that's the prime, is cost effective because we have to ensure that that's a requirement for our federal programs that, you know, for every dollar spent, we're, we're, we're seeing at least a dollar return in, in, in benefits. We want to make sure that projects are built to code or above code. Um, We want to make sure they are environmentally and historic preservation, um, meet all those requirements. And then we also want to align to hazard mitigation plans. So I always like to say, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to limit people's creativity. Um, it just needs to go to those things. We do have a couple of resources that when when we were building the program, people were saying, well, tell me what a brick project looks like. We created a couple of, of different resources. One is called our Mitigation Action Portfolio. You can find that on the brick website. Um, and it is a, a collection of case studies, um, pretty um, easy to read examples. And we purposefully, it's uh, probably got between 40 and 50 examples in it right now. We update it once a year. Um, We purposely picked projects that were across the country. They were um, different hazards, different community sizes. So you have urban projects to very rural and tribal examples, um, and gives a collection of different ways that communities have implemented mitigation in their community. Um, for the most part, like when we launched it, we launched it at the same time we launched the program. So when we launched it, it had no brick projects because at that point there weren't any. Um, we, one of the things we've been doing as we've updated it is, it. is we have started putting some of the brick selections in there. Um, you're correct that with us having just announced this year our third crop of selections, we don't have any completed projects. I mean, we're talking, you know, infrastructure projects and Those take years to build. Um, So it'll probably be a few years before we start seeing completed brick projects. But we are starting to update our uh, mitigation action portfolio with some brick selections to at least um, include in there some of the, the projects that we have selected. And what we do with the mitigation action portfolios, we try to show people snapshots of what the project is, who they partnered with, um, where the funding came from, what are some of the challenges they experienced, and where to find more information, including getting in touch with the the local community the project is coming from. We also include on our website um, every year very short narratives on all of our selections. So it's a place where you can get just a couple of sentences um, of each of the project types to learn more. So, for example, um, in BRIC FY 2022, which is the our selections that came out in August of this year, one of our projects that was selected is in Connecticut. It's called the Resilient Bridgeport Coastal Flood Defense System. And basically it's, you know, looking at what it's Bridgeport in Connecticut is, is Connecticut's most populous city with a low-lying geography and and aging infrastructure, which we find all over the country. And this project, it looks to address the risk from both coastal storm surge and regular rainfall by leveraging a combination of gray and green infrastructure. So the BRIC program does have priorities around nature-based solutions. And so This is something we like to see is when green infrastructure can be added in. And this project also includes a storm surge protection barrier, pump system, and then it has the green infrastructure components such as bioswales and rain gardens. And it's looking to basically provide flood protection um, for up to what's known as a 100-year floodplain and can accommodate two and a half sea level rise over a 50 year design. So, you know, when you talk about what do we like to see in the BRIC program, this is something that is not only mitigating the risk that is known today, but is looking at future risk. Um, So it's mitigating the risk of tomorrow. It's adding, um, it involves parks. So it's offering, other benefits than just natural hazard risk reduction. It adds green components, so that lives into our priority around funding nature-based solutions. So as our our uh, priorities in the program, like for this year, are infrastructure that benefits disadvantaged populations, climate adaptive, use of nature-based solutions, and code work. And so it really is addressing multiple of those priorities.
0: Uh, I, yeah, I really like that. And that- to me, is what I think of when I think of a brick program, in part just because it has multiple components. Um, you mentioned different pieces. It's not just like we are building an evacuation road or we are building a flood wall. it's it's there's different integrated components to creating resilience. is that um is that a requirement, or is that just something that is encouraged because it can provide better resilience and better ancillary benefits?
2: It's encouraged. Um so you know the brick program, as far as eligibility, will still fund traditional kind of incremental or individual property mitigation. It can still do that, but it absolutely encourages kind of this more system-based mitigation because we want to ensure that we're, you know, what we want to be doing is mitigating the complete risk in a community as much as possible and and understanding how different systems within the community interplay or... You know, depend on each other to work. So, how are you ensuring you know, something that we offer? Um, I will say points. We have a comp- our competitive part of our program um, is a is off of a point based system. So it, it it looks at offering points. The more kind of complete or integrated the solution is across the community.
0: Yeah, excellent, cool. Um, one thing you mentioned uh, previously, you brought up the fact that brick is not just to intended to provide uh, mitigation and just to make a community resilient to existing hazards, but to think about future impacts as well, climate change, um, sea level rise, etc. Um, I know there's a, a wide range of climate impacts across the nation, um, but we are, this podcast is focused a bit more on coastal. And so the, the biggest impacts to resilience are sea level rise and coastal storm, uh, increasing coastal storm intensity and all the, the, effects that that has um, does fema have sort of its own standard for what it is looking for when communities are trying to address sea level rise or coastal storms how how do you how do you sort of judge or adjudicate projects based on their ability to um, withstand future sea level uh, as as well as current coastal hazards
2: uh, FEMA doesn't have, or we don't in the BRIC program, use a specific standard. For example, one thing that we've always wanted to do is to support local communities who might have, you know, be- better data or better knowledge of what their risks are. We certainly, uh, you know, if if um, if communities are using national products, whether it may be something produced by NOAA. Or another federal agency, um, we would certainly take that as well. But we want to always give the opportunity for local governments to also say, you know, listen, we've done our own study work, and here's what we, you know, it's very, it's very defined at the at the community level, and here's what we need to do to um, to mitigate our risk. So the thing that we ask is that in our applications when a community is describing the the risk reduction activity, so they're talking about what the project actually is they're also providing information about what is the risk and how much is it being reduced right like so is it is it lowering is it is it addressing so many feet of sea level rise or is it you know is it reducing flooding um, impacts to this this neighborhood or this you know, downtown area where where are they getting that data? And then ha- what's the in, like engineering that shows that this solution is actually going to do that risk reduction? And then what's the 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 um, does, what's the residual risk that is left behind? Because rarely in infrastructure projects, you know, they always can be. Well, not always, but most of the time can be um, still overcome if the disaster activity is so big.
0: Sure, you're you're managing to the hundred year or the five hundred year storm event flood risk, but occasionally you'll get a thousand year storm event, and you know that'll overtop. <laughs> there,
2: there's 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 if you're leaving any property behind, um, you're almost always going to have some level of residual risk. So understanding what's the level of protection you're 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 designing to, and then what is still being left. So it's it's really. To your question of you know what do we need to see, it's really about including all that work in your application, including a copy of your your data that you're using or a or a, a point back to the data that you're using.
0: How are you guys thinking about the the, the time bound nature of some of some of this resilience work? Thinking about you know you, you may be creating resilience for a coastal community for the next fifty years, but as you start approaching a hundred years or even beyond. You know, it, it may be inevitable with sea level changes that 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 part of the community might not um, might not be around. You know, you might have to think about sort of a relocation for certain aspects. But that, at least in my mind, there is definitely benefit in in buying time and creating resilience in the in the next fifty years to allow a more equitable and just um, relocation, rather than just wiping that out. Is that something that's being considered? And, and if so, how are you thinking about the the temporal nature of resilience?
2: Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think really, you know, from a from a local perspective, I think that's something they have to grapple with, right? Is especially those that are on the coast and figuring out what does the future look like and what do we adapt? How do we adapt, I should say? How do we adapt to our changing conditions? You know, one thing we've looked at is we fund infrastructure projects. We always in the cost effectiveness we do so determining what are the benefits versus what are the costs that's done for a certain time bound so all projects have what are called a a useful project life um so even if there weren't changing conditions as you're looking at infrastructure projects they may still have you know maintenance has to happen on those projects every year and at some point those projects have out out basically outdate their useful life. I think we, you know, we think about that with the, the infrastructures in the United States today. So I think there's there's a balance of already understanding even without a changing climate, there's still, you know, if you fund any kind of infrastructure work, it still has a useful life to consider. And then I think that's exacerbated by climate conditions or, or changing climate conditions. And so a community has to really grapple, especially if they have limited resources, how do, they, how do they adapt and what is worth funding today to stay or to, to you know, what level of funding do you put in place to adapt in place versus starting to have other conversations with where do we maybe need to relocate or when do we relocate or, you know, or we don't need to. And, we, and our, our adaption is staying in place, but it's making sure that our services and systems can support a changing climate.
0: So it sounds like from the FEMA perspective, you're really looking at that the community or the applicant to sort of be the judge of what makes the most sense and make that compelling case, both in terms of sea level rise, you know, climate model, downscaled climate modeling, as well as sort of long-term viability and ability to stay, stay in place.
2: Absolutely. And that's either, you know, it's, 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 it's understanding both from both the data side and making sure the local government is, or the um, community is, um, is using the resources or whether those are, you know, they're tapping into national resources or they have their own data, but also just from a community engagement standpoint, right? We do, we want to make sure that the, the, the citizens, the folks that live there are a part of this process and are, you know, are kind of thinking about the future of their communities.
0: Excellent. So I've got, I think, I think just one more question sort of on how the program operates. And I want to get a bit more into the sort of, um, you know, upcoming opportunities. Um, and that's to get at the sort of justice and equity angle. Uh, one of the initial criticisms I heard, I think it was after the first round of, of projects came out, was that, you know, it was a lot of big projects. You know, the, the you're you're basing project decisions partly, as you mentioned, on on efficiency. And so there's benefit cost ratios, which often end up making, you know, high wealthy areas, better, you know, better investment decisions. But that leaves poorer communities who've often historically been Underserved, continue to be underserved, and um, I know you, know. you Go to the FEMA's website, you go to the BRIC website, and you see Justice 40 very prominently on there. And so, I know this is a something that you guys are thinking about. Can you talk a bit about how um, the equity aspect, or how how you're integrating um, the Justice 40 initiative uh, into the BRIC program?
2: Absolutely. And you know, one thing I will say is from our from our first build of BRIC, we always said that one of our our kind of guiding principles was to enable equal outcomes. And that is something we have continued to try to learn from year to year, from that first year of funding up until this third year selection. Justice40 came into our program during the second year with the Biden-Harris administration, and that gave us basically a metric, right? It gave us a way to measure um, where our benefits were going. And what it's done is Justice Forty has helped us understand kind of the distributional side of equity. So, the, you know, how much funding and where are the benefits going to? Um, what we've done to help drive to better distribution, we felt like, or different distribution um, for more equitable outcomes, is we've looked at our procedural equity. So what kind of elements of the program did we think were barriers and where did we have space to change those? Some of our biggest ones um, include the benefit cost analysis. So we've been able to work with our partners in hazard mitigation assistance to implement um, abilities to um, offer BCA assistance to more disadvantaged communities. So for example, during the first year of BRIC, your BCA, the benefit cost analysis was a gate. It was something you had to have at the front of the application period and if you didn't attach one you were automatically kicked out and so we've changed that so that it's no longer a gate it's still a requirement we have to have a completed benefit cost but analysis but we put it further in the process so that if you can if you go through the other stages of the review process and everything still is looking positive and you can know basically get into the selection um, pool then FEMA will help you do your benefit cost analysis in between selection and actually awarding so that's just one example Um, another example of procedural changes we've made in the program to help drive to equitable equitable outcomes include changing our competition criteria so we have upped from the first year to the to the fourth year which we just announced our fourth cycle of funding or notice of funding opportunity we have dramatically increased the points in the competition that go to disadvantaged populations we've removed criteria such as having an increased cost share or non-federal cost share um, so we've tried to through learning or how our points work every year through things like sensitivity analysis understand how can we move the as one of my executives like to say the knobs and dials in the program to to try to drive to more equitable distribution
0: so uh, I do actually have one more uh, procedural question which is we've been talking about the applicants um, c- can you tell us who is eligible because this isn't just you know you can't just be a community group right this has to go through the state process can you talk a little bit a little bit about that
2: sure sure and that's probably one of the you know the the most basic questions we get over and over because a lot of people have heard of the BRIC program, we can always increase awareness, so I appreciate you inviting us to have this conversation. Um, But people get interested and they're like, I I would love to talk more about that, where do I go? So the groups that can apply directly to FEMA, those are called the applicants. Um, That includes states, federally recognized tribes, and territorial governments, um, as well as the District of Columbia. Um, So typically, in a state, it's going to be run through the state emergency manager or the state hazard mitigation officer, SHMO, and they're the ones that put the application to FEMA. Um, What are known as sub-applicants, so these are the folks that are going to be developing typically the projects that are going to submit those to the applicant, like a state, include local governments, uh, different tribal agencies or state agencies, um, or territorial agencies. So for example, I'm from the Commonwealth of Kentucky. So a county may put a project application together. It's called a subapplication. They would then submit that to Kentucky Emergency Management who would attach that subapplication to its application and then they submit that package to FEMA. So if you think of it like the state um, in that case acts almost like an umbrella where all the subapplications come under it. So, the people that I did not list, right, include private nonprofits, private industry, universities, um, in, or different academia sometimes, if they're not state, if they're private, um, or just private citizens. But the work that we do or the work that we fund can absolutely benefit those groups. So, it may be like home elevations for, you know, to raise a, a a home out of a floodplain, or it may be um, large infrastructure projects that support businesses and things like that. And that's one of the reasons that BRIC has a guiding principle about promoting partnerships, um, because those entities that are going to benefit are going to coordinate with that local government who's going to put the application together and submit it to the state.
0: Very helpful. So if you're interested, work with your county or your nonprofit, but they have to connect with their State hazard mitigation officer, their state emergency management agency, to get this submitted up to the full the full program. Um,
2: and and just to clarify more, your local government. So nonprofits are not eligible sub applicants in the brick program.
0: Right. So get. So in fact, the nonprofit would then need to make the case to the local government that it should be a government or a county or municipality kind of thing. Yep. Um. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you for that really expansive, um, f- clear understand explanation of how the BRIC program operates. Let's take it what we're sort of looking at today, um, which is an amazing opportunity. There is a current uh, notice out for BRIC, which is $1 billion, not $1 million, $1 billion with a B. Um, it's a ton of money. And, and uh, I think a, a big chunk of that comes from the bipartisan infrastructure law Um, Can you talk a bit about how Bill, how the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, we sometimes refer to it as Bill, uh, gave BRIC that big boost or or how has has Bill changed the program or advanced the program in your, your opinion?
2: Yeah, it, it is definitely a boost in funding, which is super helpful. Um, so the bipartisan infrastructure law gave BRIC a billion dollars over five years. So basically, they gave gave us the option, you know, of putting about two hundred million dollars of, of funding into the year into each cycle, and that has really allowed us to boost the funding we had available from the disaster relief fund. Um, so, for example, um, the, you know, one of the challenges I think I want to talk about, though, with with we have in the BRIC program is there is there's such a big need for this work. And so if you look back um, from our first year of BRIC um, with the 2020 cycle, we had $500 billion available. That was more than twice any cycle of funding we had ever had for pre-disaster mitigation we still had $3.5 billion in submissions. So we were seven times oversubscribed. In 2021, we put out a billion dollars. We were four times oversubscribed. Last year, we we took a lot more money out of our piggy bank, including the use of bill funding, and we're able to put out $2.295 billion. We were still two times oversubscribed. So this year, I'm able to both use Disaster Relief Fund and the bill funding to put out the billion dollars that we have available for this for this cycle. So we'll see what you know how many um, sub applications we actually receive. Um, But we've continued every year to have massive oversubscription in the program because there's just such a big need out there.
0: And I think that's a message we've heard. I've been talking about this year as the summer of money, and I think in a conversation I re- recently held, uh, brick sort of made the summer of money help also turn into the fall of money with all the funding coming from BIL and IRA, and we're seeing that over and over. That this massive increase in funding doesn't mean everything's getting funded. It just means that there's even more project needs out there. I think programs that hadn't even considered applying before, when the, when there were smaller levels, are now starting to uh, starting to realize what the kind of what the kind of project work can be done. So um, good to hear. The other, the other piece that I was hoping you could touch on briefly, and I know it's not your program, is uh, FEMA put out this notice for um, $1 billion in BRIC funding and then also $800 million in flood mitigation assistance. I was wondering if you could maybe just at a high level talk about flood mitigation assistance and how that interacts with the BRIC program.
2: Sure. Um, Flood Mitigation Assistance, I like to think of as my big brother. Um, That program's been around a little bit longer, a a lot longer than BRIC, Um, but we run our programs together. So we are, we go out at the same time, we make our announcements at the same time, we are We are twins in that way um so but the fma program or flood mitigation assistance of course it focuses on flood where we're in brick a multi-hazard program just by name but it looks to make federal funds available to the same folks that we do states u.s territories federally recognized tribes and local governments but to reduce their eliminate their risk to repetitive flood damages particular for structures that are insured on the national flood insurance program or um, property or for properties maybe in communities um, that would benefit, like community projects, but that would benefit properties or structures insured under the National Flood Insurance Program. And the reason that they have that is its funding actually comes from the disaster, um, or I'm sorry, excuse me, the National Flood Insurance Fund. So that program actually funds FMA. Um, It this year, it received a very big boost from the bipartisan infrastructure law. So it received that the FMA program received $3.5 billion over the five years. So that's allowed them to go from about $160 to $75 million a year to this $800 million a year that they've put out this year for the program. So that has allowed them, you know, this this bill funding has really allowed the FMA program to have some dramatic increases um, to mitigate the flood risk to NFIP insured properties.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I like the uh, the 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 Big Brother analogy. It's been around a bit longer, um, but you guys may have out outspent them. But it's good to hear that both projects are, or both um, programs are being supported and have uh, you know somewhat unprecedented uh, opportunities in the next in the next coming years. Um, I also really like how you how the FMA is comes from uh, funding through the National Flood Insurance Program because I do think. One thing that we've sort of touched on or you sort of touched on is how all these programs within FEMA work together to create a better resilience to disaster. You know, I think on an individual plate, BRIC, it's a multi-hazard program, but it's, you know, it's 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 one, you know, it's one tool in the toolbox. FMA is another tool in the toolbox. The flood insurance program is another tool. There's all these things that are coming together to help support um, more resilient communities. And obviously as we see, uh, disasters and, and hazard, increase, um, particularly from climate change, that's going to be ever more important. So, uh, I am sure we could spend all day talking about all the various aspects of BRIC as well as all the various aspects of um, FEMA. Uh, We don't have that time, um, but is there anything else that you would like to bring up or share that we didn't get a chance to talk about with BRIC that uh, you feel is is sort of an essential ingredient in, in what makes BRIC successful?
2: Yeah, there is something I would like to, and I I realize I failed to mention this in anything I've said before, and that is um, we have the ability in our legislation to do both financial and technical assistance. And what we tried to really breathe life into with um, the Build of the Brick program is the piece of technical assistance. Um, so, we have a section of our program that has nothing to do with our historic um, funding opportunities, and that is our non financial technical assistance, or what we call BRIC DTA. And what BRIC DTA is, is it is a easier kind of application process. So you don't put together a project application. You just basically complete a form that says, hey, I've got needs, I've got risk here, but I don't even know where to start. And that's from a community perspective. So it's for local communities and tribal nations particularly. And so it's a way for them to get hands-on technical assistance. It isn't funding. It doesn't have a match. It is actually... FEMA and its staff or its contractors in community with um, local organizations for up to three years to help them get started on a resilience journey that may lead at some point to um, brick applications getting put in. And so that was something we started in 2020 as a very small piece of our program. That first year, we selected eight communities and tribal nations. The next year we selected 20 more last year we selected another 46 so we're in 74 communities and tribal nations now doing this technical assistance or will be very soon and we're on a path to with this cycle um select another up eight at least 80 and so this is something we want to get into a place where we are in community with in any given time about 300 each year um that that has the same deadlines as for applying to it as the grant side of the house, um, but it has a different process. Like you don't have to go through a state. A community can apply directly to FEMA. Um, and we will coordinate with the state on the back end um, if, if they're interested in receiving this technical assistance. What you know, one thing I, I like to think about with Brick is we want to kind of touch a community wherever they are on their resilience journey with tech, you know, this direct technical assistance being I'm not, I don't have the capacity right now to complete an application all the way up to funding, um, you know, major construction projects. And we have mechanisms all along the path to pin, you know, to reach a community at whatever stage they're in.
0: That's great. Um, I think there's, you know, so many communities out there that (laughs) may know they have the problem, but not really sure what the solution is, Um, or may have an inkling of a solution kind of idea, but certainly not enough to put together a competitive application for it. So it's great to hear that you guys are providing that on the ground expertise and and technical assistance. So... um, Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I just, it's been incredible to see the rise of the, the BRIC program and see how influential and, and hopefully successful it is becoming. And we haven't actually seen the projects on the ground yet but it, it certainly has um, laid, you've, you've laid some great groundwork for success. Um, before I let you go, uh, we always, I always ask my, uh, my guests where they, where's their favorite beach or coastal area, um, where they go to get inspired. I know you, you don't come from a, a coastal area, so I will allow you to amend that to say, where is your favorite outdoors or natural area? Um, if it is not a coast, but where, where do you go to, to, to get reinvigorated and re-inspired?
2: Thank you so much, Derek, and I, you've touched my other passion. So if one of my passions is natural hazard mit- mitigation, my other is traveling. Um, and so I, I, will, I will take your question maybe a little different way in that I get inspired by travel. And one of the things I try to do is every year make sure I'm putting in enough time for that um, and going to explore new places. So um, in just a few weeks over the Christmas and New Year's holidays, I'm going to be traveling for the first time to New Zealand and Australia. Um, and so I'm hoping that the three weeks I'll be spending there is gonna give me a lot of inspiration and kind of um, refreshing to come back and to hit 2024 strong.
0: Uh, that's terrific. And I, I, unless you're spending a whole lot of time in the outback, I assume you'll be getting to a, plenty of coastal areas in <laughs> those two great yes. coastal countries. Um, Well, thank you so much, Camille. Really appreciate it and really appreciate the work of the BRIC program.
2: Thank you.